Welcome to Numani. I'm Brian Hirsch. Our program this evening is concentrating on estate planning. Two important legal documents that are encompassed in estate planning are will and trust. It's imperative that these documents are regularly reviewed, take into account any changes relating to you and your family. It's often overlooked is how you are legally married, the impact of your marriage on estate planning. And joining this evening are two gurus on the subject, and I'm delighted to welcome both Gordon Stewart, Managing Director of Cura, all the way from Mauritius, and Harry Joffe, Head of Legal Services of Discovery Life. And so, as not to leave them out, Harry, welcome. Thank you for coming from Santon. And good, good to, to be here, Brian. And good to have you both on the <laughs> show. To be with you. Your yeah. traffic was probably worse than mine. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, look, my, my first question talks about the marriage regime, Harry. It's something you've dealt with. It's something you've lectured on on numerous occasions. How does that affect your will and policies and, and your estate plan? Yeah, Brian, I mean, how long have we got? It's a huge effect. Yeah, we haven't got too long. We've got a lot of questions to get through right. tonight. So if you're married in community or property, there's one system that applies. If you're married out of community or property, it's another system. If you're married out of community or property with accrual, it's a third system. So it's got a huge impact. Just to keep it very short, if you're in community or property, then everything is shared, or decisions are shared, or major decisions, let's be accurate. For property, for example, investment, shares, have to be jointly administered. If you're married out of community of property, you don't share anything. If you're married out of community of property with accrual, then you've still got two separate estates, but you share a lot of the growth during the marriage, but only at the end of the marriage. So it's got a huge impact on your trust planning, your will mm. planning, everything you do is yeah. impacted by how you married. Well, yes. do you think people take the marriage regime enough into account in estate plan? It's a very good question, Brian. I think, I mean, I've met with many clients who actually didn't get married in the way that they intended to get married. You know, they were in love. So they married they went, the person they intended to marry. That too. But they go off and they get married, and then by default they're married in community of property and not realizing what the consequences yeah. of that is. Uh, I think when, when you sit down and you speak to the client and you tell them that these are the consequences, then they do kind of make an educated decision from there. But possibly up until that moment, no, they don't quite realize what, what it means. Because one of the big problems really is one in three marriages end in divorce. I heard it was so higher. They, sorry, even higher than that. One in two. One in two. And then, you, and then there, there, there are other ramifications. You know, it's all fair enough being in love, but love and war becomes different. And Harry, there's quite, a, quite an impact on retirement funds and exactly. a whole range of policies and, and assets in the mental Exactly. Divorce. I mean, so we have a lot of cases where husband and wife get divorced and the major assets are either a pension fund, an RA, or a preserver. And that, of course, becomes an asset to be fought over in a divorce. But whether you can claim against it or whether the other spouse can claim depends on how they're married. So if they're married out of community of property without accrual after 1 November 84, that retirement fund cannot be an asset in the state for divorce purposes. If, it's if they're married with accrual or in community, then it can be. Mm -hmm. So then it becomes a big issue how you were married, when you were married, what you've got in your antenuptial contract. Because some of the antenuptial contracts exclude retirement funds. And if that's a major asset, well, then that would take it out. So assuming it's not excluded and assuming they were married with the right system, then the non-member spouse can claim against a pension provident RA or preserver. And that, of course, becomes a huge issue because the divorce agreement needs to be correctly worded. It needs to bring the fund in. It needs to name the fund correctly. And uh, as I say, if we have mistakes, and all the insurers have this problem, where the divorce agreement is incorrectly worded or doesn't name the fund properly, and then that divorce order is actually unenforceable. And then the, the insurance company or the retirement fund will ignore that uh, divorce order. And then it becomes a personal obligation between the spouses mm -hmm. no more. Gordon, we talked about marriage regime. Mm. We talked up when my opening. I spoke about the importance of your will. 
there is a lot of confusion. And we've been dealing with this, Gordon. You, you guys have been on this program probably between six and eight years. I'm not even coming up. Ten. Is it ten years, Gordon? Yeah. Made us and, old. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and we've spoken a lot about the need for one will, a South African will, and compared to having overseas wills. Yeah. I think there's a, there, there may be a change in, in attitude and, and change in advice about that, Gordon. Can I just quickly jump in and say something that Harry's... Just no. remember as well that if you get divorced, you've got three months to change yes. your will. Otherwise, the, if you had to pass away after that, then it's kind of implied... What section that is that, Brian? I taught you about it. To be of the wills there. To oh, Catholic. Thank you very much. <laughs> to be Harry. or not to be. To be or not to be. Yeah, Harry, just one thing. Uh, it's, not only, it's not only your will. It's your, in the, exactly your beneficiaries under your life yeah. policies. Yeah, true. And endowment policy. Exactly. If you, if you leave it longer than 90 days, yeah. they'll assume that was your wish. Well, the exactly. life policy is not even protected by TB. So you should change your life policy actually the day you get divorced. Because if you die within that three-month period, the ex could still be the beneficiary on that yeah. policy. So you don't even have the three months there, which is a very important point, Brian, that you make. That should be the first thing you change is the policy. Okay, so let's just talk but about the will. Yeah, come yeah. back to your question. One will, two wills, or multiple wills. Brian, like, like Harry said earlier, how long have I got? Uh, I think what you've got to look at is, A, one, the nature of the asset, and two, the geographic location of that asset. Uh, for example, some countries like Europe, let's, let's call Europe, Europe have got forced succession. But there is a proviso to that in terms of what we call Brussels 4, where you can then say, all right, fine, the domicile of the individual will overrule the forced succession rules of Europe. So therefore, you could then have it that your estate in Europe is dealt with under South African laws. Uh, Mauritius, for example, has forced succession and no escape. So then it would make sense to have a will to deal with your Mauritius assets. If you go into the Channel Islands, Jersey is a good example, they can't make any changes to any of the assets until the probate has been issued. So to speed the process up, you'd want to have two wills. Uh, if you've got immovable property in the UK, because of the different types of ownership, tenants in common, beneficial co-ownership, then it would make sense for immovable property to have two wills. Difficult call. Okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. We're going to take a break. You can call us this evening, 011, it's a new number, 011. 484-0468. Stay tuned and we'll be back shortly. Welcome back to New Manning this evening. We're discussing estate planning. My guest Gordon Stewart and Aaron Joffe. And if you'd like to call, note our new number, 011-484-0468. Our email remains the same at brian at bdtv.co.za. Before I get to the emails, let's just finish this point. Yep. We were talking about the will and, we, yep. and how long have we got. Yeah. But it appears that every set, every, you've got to really examine your circumstances exactly. and examine where your assets are. And then maybe, Harry, you can answer this. Can a South African lawyer draft both a local and international will, or do you have to get that will drafted? Well, I mean, they can, but the question is, do you want them to? I mean, what Gordon is saying is highly specialized, highly technical detail. If you, for example, are wanting to use Brussels 4, do you want to use a local lawyer, or do you want someone mm -hmm. from Europe who knows exactly the wording that should go in the will, exactly the detail? 
So, I mean, you've of course got very okay, good ties South in Africa. don't have any legal uh, parties overseas. I mean, they, they've got assets here. They may have inherited property. And as you made mm. the point, if you inherited firms, property yeah. in the UK, you do need a separate mm. will, yeah. any immovable property. All the big law firms here, Brian, have got associate companies overseas. Yeah. So That's what I'm saying. So you can go to a law firm and get them to assist you in drafting. Refer you on and to then, we, yeah. I mean, when, back, back in the olden days, we used to draft the very straightforward, simple offshore wills that dealt with the UK or alternatively the Channel Islands. And that was very much a simple case of on my death, I bequeath everything to my spouse, failing my spouse, I bequeath it to my children. And then you would write in a testamentary trust. Mm. So if it was fairly vanilla, then you can do it from SA. But as Harry said, if, if this thing is starting to get complicated, especially for European, go and have it professionally done. And then for those people who have property, immovable property in Mauritius, you have to go and have it done in Mauritius because they have such stringent requirements for the drafting and preparation of a will that to try and do it here, they'll ignore your SA will. Just let's take Ken on the line, and I want to come back to you. We, we didn't really finish off retirement funds yeah. and, the, and, and the wording. So let's just take Ken. Ken, good evening. Go ahead with the question. Um, hello. If you have a will and want to make some simple changes, for example, changing an executor, can you do it yourself? Well, yes, you just do a codicil. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and as long as the codicil is signed under the same rules that were applicable when the will was drafted, i.e. it's got to be witnessed, dated, signed, etc., by the individual changing. Uh, if it's a straightforward changing, yeah. And also refer to the date of the will. Yeah, correct. Well, what do you don't like I, it, I agree with yeah, Gordon. I mean, I agree 100% with Gordon, but I'm just so nervous because yeah. things always go wrong. You know, they forget to sign or they get the wrong person to mm. sign. They get the person in the house who's a beneficiary. Yeah, you know. I, I just hate people doing it themselves. It's just too much that can go wrong. I think you can do it. But Would do you I want advise to? that you yeah. do it? No. Okay. Gordon, let's just talk about. Harry, this is sorry, your question about retirement funds and, and, yes. and the wording, particularly in divorce agreements. Well, I tell you, we get three very common mistakes when we get divorce orders. First of all, they don't name the fund correctly. So the husband has got an RA with discovery. The divorce order says the wife can claim 50% of his retirement fund or of his pension fund. And if they say pension fund and he's got a retirement fund, well, then that's not valid. It's got to name the fund correctly. Secondly, they don't give her the right amount. So they'll say she's allowed 20,000 rand, but 20,000 rand when he retires. And of course the Divorce Act doesn't allow that. You've got to give her an amount at divorce, not post-divorce. And then thirdly, a lot of the divorce orders give her interest and growth, which you can't do. So any of those three mistakes come in, we're just going to simply kick out the divorce order, say we can't comply with it because it's against the law, and then it's between the spouses to go get it sorted. They'd have to go back, they'd have to, go back to the go court, back to court and amend that agreement. Amend the divorce the order, order and it's a nightmare and it just drags on and on. Or the spouse can go back to the other spouse and say, you made me this promise in the divorce order, the insurer can't pay, you must now pay personally. So, so all these things, because they are legal and complicated, you've really got to get the right, right mm. advice. I mean, exactly. You've got to get a specialist. Yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, you've got to pay for it. Better to pay for a little bit. Justin Maloney says, we often discuss what is a sham trust. Please could you answer the following questions. How do you determine a sham trust and what is the difference between a sham trust and an alter ego trust? And then I'll come, just to stay there and I'll come to the rest it's of the question. those two because there's okay. theses that have been written on that. I mean, mm. there's a fantastic thesis written, uh, one of our step members wrote it about a 200 page thesis on it. And it's been accepted by the courts in Fazal versus Kane, yeah. a very famous case. So sham trust actually does not exist. 
It's a trust where you haven't complied with the requirements and you haven't set up the trust at all or you haven't intended to set up the trust and no trust exists. And I must just say, apart from one very weird case in the free state, no South African court has said a sham trust uh, has taken place because that would mean the trust doesn't exist and the property in the trust has to move mm. and no one knows where it will move to because there's no entity owning it. An alter ego trust is something very different. That's where you've got a trust, it's not run properly, and it was set up and it was run in order to defraud either a creditor or another spouse. And once you've got those two, then the court can pierce that trust and say, even though the trust exists, we're going to, just for the purposes of this divorce order or divorce agreement or creditor claim, we're going to ignore the trust and allow them to attack trust assets. That's where they start looking at things like de jure control, de facto control. So the trust deed itself, has it given a particular individual, one of the trustees, who's probably the person who set it up in the first place, has it given that person more authority and power than the other trustees? And then de facto control is that the trustee itself might look completely vanilla and we're all equal, but you have actually been making all of the decisions behind uh, the investments and the distributions to the beneficiaries, etc. The court well, call can, it can, a, can abuse you, of a trust you, form. So they've mm. abused that trust form. But can you clean up an alter ego trust? Yeah, uh, you can. But I mean, it's, the question is, from what date? I don't think you can ever go back. Uh, I, what, what you would probably look at is to say, look, I've realized the errors of my way. I was inexperienced. I didn't know. I took an opinion, and I've realized that this is how I should be doing things going forward. Whether you're challenged on what happened prior to that. And Brian, uh, sorry, just remember that alter ego trust in itself isn't enough. You know, the fact that you didn't run the trust properly or you didn't do trust resolutions doesn't automatically mean the trust can be pierced. Mm. You've got to go to that second leg, and there's got to be proof that there's fraud or intent to defraud someone. In other words, to defraud a creditor or defraud a spouse or some kind of abuse against the spouse or creditor. So the fact is, it won't be automatically terminal that you didn't run the trust properly. I mean, Gordon's right, you should start fixing it up and running it properly. But they'll still need to go to that second leg and prove this intention well, to well, defraud. Well, one of the things so many people do is they, they form trust, they have trustees, and then the trustees just, author, just agree with everything that the original settler set up. And they just send out a resolution and everyone just signs them. Yeah, well, that's, 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 that's problem. very that, common. That's the problem. That and is. that's what I'm saying. But that's if de facto control yeah. if it keeps on getting driven by exactly. one particular individual. It's abuse of trust form mm. because it's not being run like a trust should be run. Um, Tanya in Cape Town says, with his state duty on the increase and now up to 25% above 30 million, it makes a lot of sense to buy the discovery life policy offshore, leaving the trust as a beneficiary. What is the age limit and are there very severe medical requirements, Harry? I mean, we've spoken about this. We've spoken about the bottom draw trust. Yeah. Gordon, would you like forming a trust now? And you've got a special deal going for people that want to do that. Correct. You spoke about the policy, having this, bod this offshore trust being the beneficiary, not part of your state. But yes. the question here is, what age and is it, very, the, is it a normal policy so you have to undergo all the normal exactly. medicals? Exactly. So for all intents and purposes, it's a normal policy in terms of underwriting. So the underwriting is done in South Africa. All the medicals are done in South Africa. The policy is issued, but of course it's issued out of South Africa. So you Harry, pay your premiums. We're going to take a break. We've got certain people that uh, insist on that. So we, you can call us 011-484-0648. We'll continue with this point when we return.
If you just joined the programme this evening, we're focused on estate planning. My guests, Gordon Stewart and Harry Joffe. Our lines will remain open, 011-4840-468. And I'll try and get through as many emails, but, you know, this is a programme. We've got so much packed into it in such a short space of time. Harry, uh, let us carry on that point of view. So it's a a normal, no, but it's a normal premium. You've got to go normal underwriting. But let me ask you this question. Would it make sense for many people who've got policies here for estate duty actually to apply is the premium commensurate with the premium that you're yes. going to pay well, that's South what Africa makes it so special if policy. I can just take the opportunity because it's normal underwriting so you don't get penalized for being a South African as you often do offshore you know your risk profile is higher it's the same underwriting as a normal South African policy so the premiums wouldn't be vastly different and of course the benefit as we've said because it's issued out of South Africa through our Guernsey office and payable outside South Africa it's a non-domestic policy and it should be free of estate duty. There's a couple of little tricks which we haven't got time to go into, but assuming you do everything correctly, it should be free of estate duty. And uh, that would make it better than a local policy because you don't have to name your spouse as a beneficiary to get the 4Q mm. to avoid estate duty. But Brian, I think, just to stress, I've had quite a lot of queries from a lot of your viewers afterwards. It's a pure risk life policy. It's not an endowment policy. So it's not an investment policy, it's a life policy only. Well, that's really what you're doing for estate planning. You do exactly. have mm. straight life insurance. You mm. don't want savings values exactly. in there. Mm. I mean, it's like buying Much motor insurance. Exactly. If it happens, you get paid out. If Correct. it doesn't happen, the premium's lost. Correct. And then, of course, if you can use a trust, an offshore trust as a beneficiary, yeah. you die, pays into the offshore trust, no estate duty when you die, no estate duty ever again because it's now sitting in that offshore yeah. trust. Gordon, are people picking that up from our program, the, this bottom drawer trust? Yes, they are. I yeah. actually... I think, like, like Harry said, he's, he's had a number of, of queries with regards to the life policy. I've had the same on the bottom door trust. Because yeah. it, makes, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it really is. And particularly now with people, with, you know, because really what you're trying to do is create liquidity. And with estate duty above 30 million, uh, going up to 25%. And who knows where's that going to be? Because if you look at inheritance taxes in the USA and UK, mm. you're talking 40% yeah. and in other mm. parts of Europe even higher. Mm. So, you know, the chances are, you know, like capital gains also started, I think it was uh, 25% yeah. and then a third and now 40%. Who knows where that's going? Stephen Rambuk says, I've got a trust offshore. The trustees' fees are ludicrous. What do I need to do to terminate the trust? And what are the consequences in South Africa? The trust was regularised when I took amnesty in 2003. Wow, that's, that's a, a very good thing, question, eh? and yeah. I'm loath to give him a proper answer <laughs> okay. on air. But I think he just needs to realise that the a the trustees' fees he might be paying expensive at one place, but not all trust companies charge high fees. And then second of all is that the in terms of the amnesty, yes, he's liable for the income and the capital gains year on year, but he's not liable for a state duty tax on the assets that are in the trust. So if he distributes that out back into his own name, it's a deemed capital gains tax event. And then in addition, I would say, what is the estate duty tax on that amount versus what his trustees' fees are? And how many years is he, in essence, could he buy? Jumping out of the frying pan into the fire, yeah. saving a little bit of trustee fees, but creating a much bigger problem down the line, yeah, potentially. Correct. And, okay, and he could maybe even go into the UK or the US now he's got these investments, and then he ends up with their situs issues, and he ends up paying yeah. 40% of state duty tax. So, Gordon, if you've got a trust where you find trustee fees ludicrous, you can move your of trust. Of course you can. I mean, it's administration laborious, but nothing more than that. You don't have to change your assets. Not the, at all. Or the investments. Not you at all. You can just move, the, remove and the change trustee. the trustees. Yeah. In, a, in a nutshell, what happens is the client will say to the trust company, thank you, but it's not working out. I'd like you to move to this company. 
then the new company will then interact with the retiring trustee. They do what's known as a DORA, a deed of retirement and appointment, and they communicate with each other. And that DORA is the international version of a letter of authority that you would find here in SA. And then once they've sorted out the DORA, then the trusteeship moves over. Barry in Sanders says, does a deceased state have to register for income tax? And if so, will the state need to be treated as a natural person? Or so what is qualifying income? I heard recently, and, and I stand corrected on this, is that they, they want to or they have changed the tax laws. Remember, in an estate, interest and income that accrued was not taxed within the estate, but it was taxed in the hands of the beneficiary when it was yeah, ultimately paid to yes. them. And I've heard recently that they've now stopped that and the trust, sorry, the estate has to register as a taxpayer yeah, and pay its tax that. in its own right. Yeah. Yeah. What I'd like to do, what I'd like to do, I would like to put a pin in that question yeah. and I'd like to deal with it on the next program. And I'll quickly yeah. throw in as a quick thing, CGT, if triggered in the estate, there was no benefit to pass it across to beneficiaries, then the estate had to go and register as a taxpayer if capital gains were triggered. They've just, I think, done the same uh, with income yeah, to equalize it. Problem. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Rosemary Jansby is now married in community property and I understand that my husband's marital power was abolished by legislation. What has to be in writing? And you can also tell me what happens if my husband does a transaction without my consent, can the deal oh, okay. be cancelled or does it stand? All right, Brian, no. there's a lot of interesting <laughs> detail here. So what has to be in writing are the major transactions. So if you're going to transfer property, mm. if you're going to sign as a surety, mm. and basically shares or investments and certain kinds of insurance policies like endowments. So the major assets in the estate have to have written authority from both spouses. What happens if that is breached is actually a very interesting question. So there's two different uh, areas that pop up. One is that it's uh, an asset which is handled by the one spouse in the ordinary course of their business. So let's assume it's a share trader and he's buying and selling shares all the time. He doesn't need his spouse's consent then because it's an asset in the ordinary course of his business. That would then fall out of having to get a signature from the other spouse. And then the second one is the third party could be protected if they're in good faith. So what we always get is the husband signs surety on a property without getting the wife's consent. The bank don't know he's married in community of property because he lies on the application form. Then the bank will be protected and the transaction mm. will stand. Then, of course, the other spouse has got a remedy against the guilty spouse. Well, that brings us back to marriage regime. It's so important Correct. that when you're doing your estate plan, you do include your marriage regime and work through that and all the things. Yeah, and not only that. I mean, when you're married in community of property, you have a combined estate and combined liabilities. Once you've settled that and you have this net estate, you are only entitled to bequeath 50% mm. of that. You can't bequeath the whole lot. Um, it doesn't belong to you. Exactly. exactly. Well, a will is a common estate planning tool and is the easiest and surest way for planning the distribution of your estate. It's important that it be created and executed in compliance with the laws where it's drawn up. A trust is often used as an estate planning tool and usually should be used to provide for the distribution of funds for the benefit of minor children. A trust will also provide for the management of wealth for generations into the future. Everyone's circumstances are different and you should always consult with an estate practitioner to help you choose the collect structure and vehicle used to create an estate plan that deals with your circumstances. Gordon, Harry, thank thanks you for joining me this Harry evening. You, it's important to note our program is to provide information and should not be construed as advice. Next week's program we'll be focusing on healthcare. If you need to get hold of me, my details will appear on the screen. I'd like to thank you for watching and good night.